Welcome to the Prioritizing Prevention Translating Science to Practice podcast. Our goal is to prioritize prevention conversations that matter. Our topic for today is exploring campus community partnership with special guest, Carrie Solar. Now here's our host, Holly Raffle. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Prioritizing Prevention Translating Science to Practice podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Holly Raffle, and I am so excited to be here today with Carrie Soller of the Ohio Department of Higher Education. Carrie, you and I had the opportunity to work together on Ohio's Rise and Thrive initiative, and I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to share your experience with our listeners. Your career has included leadership across the higher education field. You've held various positions at the Ohio Department of Higher Education. You've been an assistant dean of students, a director of residence life, and an assistant director of Greek life and higher institution educations across the U.S. You received your BA in history and journalism from the University of Nebraska at Kearney and a master's degree in student affairs and administration from the Indiana University at Bloomington. Wow, what a career. Thank you, Carrie. Welcome. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Absolutely. So the Ohio Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion works to highlight the role and value of prevention in building healthy and safe communities in Ohio. As someone who works at the state level to create healthy and safe communities within higher education in Ohio, what specific role can or does higher education play in creating those healthy and safe communities? Thank you again uh, for this opportunity and for the question. Um, I think there's a couple of lenses we can look at this question through. You know, first, we have to acknowledge that we know uh, our students um, are most likely to thrive and persist towards whatever their goals are when they're in environments where they feel safe, where they feel accepted, and where they feel um, supported by their institution. Uh, this, of course, you know, extends to the classroom, but also beyond, you know, in their living environments, um, how they interact with different offices, both administrative and supportive um, on our campus, uh, how they interact with their social environments, which we know don't solely exist on campus, uh, but they exist in other community organizations they're a part of, or just normal student uh, nightlife or experiences. So those are definitely things that impact our um, efforts to create safe and healthy communities. We also have to acknowledge up front too that our, com our campus communities don't end at a property line, right? Um, they extend into the greater community. And in many of our cities and towns where our institutions are located, that institution of higher education may be the main economic driver or influence um, in that community uh, beyond those campus, those lines and whatnot. Um, and so we have to acknowledge all these different variables when it comes to creating safe and healthy um, campus community environments um, and how that interacts with how the individuals uh, thrive, how they flourish, and how they feel about their, their experiences at an institution. Thank you so much. There's so much to consider, right? You, you think there's that one thing or that you know, one or two things. Um, that we can do to create healthy, safe communities. But really, it is a whole bunch of things together that the campus and the community need to come together to work on. Now, you've been deeply involved in the Changing Campus Culture Initiative at the Ohio Department of Higher Education. 
Changing Campus Culture is an effort to address sexual violence on Ohio campuses. This initiative includes various resources like a toolkit, a webinar, and of course your podcast. In the first podcast episode, Campus Culture 101, appropriately named, um, a question is asked, what is campus culture and how do you understand campus culture? I'd like for you to answer those questions um, for our listeners here today. Certainly, it's a, it's a big answer, right, to a very short question, especially if we're just doing it by word count. But ultimately, if I'm to shorten it down, campus culture is anything, everything, and everyone that um, impacts or is associated with um, the campus itself. Um, and that includes people who may not have a direct link to the campus. They're not a current student. They're not alumni. They're not employed by the institution. Um, then maybe they're just coming to the institution uh, to see a performing arts or an art exhibition, right? Maybe they're coming or interacting with our institution through a healthcare um, facility or something. And of course, we know the Im uh, impact of athletics um, on our campus communities and how culture is formed um, through that as well. Um, all these different things also affect how there is a perceived culture, right? Um, which may or may not be true for every individual that's in that campus um, community who is actually actively participating in it. In it. Um, so perceived culture can sometimes impact um, that campus culture and community setting. We also have to acknowledge there are subcultures within our community, right? And all of them are influenced by and also influence that larger sense of campus culture. So there's no one way to look at it. Um, if it, and then we also have to say it's always evolving and changing, right? Like if I'm an alumna, as an alumna, I go back to my campus where either of my campuses I attended, I guarantee I'm going to be flooded with memories um, and experiences that I had there that were both positive and negative, but that may or may not resemble the current climate or culture that exists on the campus at this time, um, depending on how long ago it was. Um, and so you know, as it's ever evolving and changing, uh, that ultimately is going to influence for the individuals in the moment that they're there, in the moment that they're interacting with our campus, how they feel about their place in that community, their sense of connectedness, their sense of belonging. Um, is this a healthy environment for me? Is it a positive environment for me to persist towards my ultimate goals, whatever they may be? Um, is this the place for me? And so campus culture um, can have that impact and completely take somebody off course, or it can really nurture them and allow them to thrive and persist to where they want to be. Thank you so much for reinforcing this notion that, you know, campus culture is not monolithic, right? It varies from campus to campus, but it also varies within the campus as well. And um, I really appreciate you speaking to uh, the intersectionality that people experience when they're on campus, right? Because they have multiple identities and multiple things that make them who they are and what they offer the campus. Uh, and those points really illustrate that power of campus culture. So our listeners are really interested in behavioral health prevention and promotion. So my next question is, is what role does behavioral health prevention and promotion play in campus culture? But I think one of the things we really have been focusing on through changing campus culture, um, heavily influenced, I think, by some of the work that you described earlier that you and I have jointly done together and that has been taking place in our campus communities well beyond even just Rise and Thrive or uh, some of those other initiatives, which is the promotion of well-being. 
and embedding it into different campus programs, prevention efforts, into our culture is really critical when it comes to fostering that positive campus culture. Um, prevention at any level for any issue um, needs to be more than the poster of the flyer here, the tabling effort here, um, the learning management system module that we send out and say, here, take this, learn some stuff, um, and checking the box essentially for compliance, right? We know that our individuals, um, and to your point about identity, right? And the multiple intersections of that, individuals are heavily influenced um, by those identities, by their peer groups, by their interactions um, with others in, um, you know, student organizations, teams, uh, performing arts groups, the classroom, the larger community beyond them. All of those things um, are circles of influence that affect and inform behaviors and attitudes. So when we start to look at how we want to approach prevention in our campus, um, if we're to foster that safe, inclusive um, environment that's supportive, we need to promote um, the type of culture that we're seeking to establish within our communities. Um, and we have to do more than just tell them about it, right? We have to build skills. We have to build resiliency. We have to build support mechanisms around that in order for um, everyone who's a part of our campus community, not just students, to see themselves as belonging to the larger campus community and feeling connected to the institution because they know that the support systems and the resources are there to help them thrive and persist towards their goals. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, you know, building, you know, knowledge, attitudes, and skills is so important in changing any culture. And so campus culture will be no different, right? We think of our work culture or our family culture or things like that. Um, that toolbox needs to be expanded. So I really appreciate you noting that role that behavioral health prevention and promotion plays in, uh, you know, putting different tools in that toolbox. So in 2015, uh, there is a report released by the Department of Higher Education called Changing Campus Culture, Preventing and Responding to Campus Sexual Violence. So now we're at 2023. So what lessons have been learned from this example that was you know, collaborative, it was research-based, it was campus community-focused, behavioral health prevention and promotion partnership around um, sexual violence? If you had kind of look back, you know, what lessons do you see from that report that have maybe carried forward to today? Thank you for the question and thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit about um, some of the successes that we have seen through changing campus culture. And I will be the first to acknowledge that while we have made tremendous progress um, since 2015, we still have a long ways to go. Um, but what we found is that taking that comprehensive, multi layered, multifaceted approach, um, and providing and putting into the hands of our campus partners and our community partners um, this evidence-informed, research-based um, strategies, we allow them to be at their best for their campus community. We allow them not to have to conform to one-size-fits-all because on the, on the off chance, like we just even think here in Franklin County, you know, within a five-mile radius, we have Ohio State, we have Columbus um, State Community College, Columbus College of Art and Design, Franklin University, Mount Carmel College of Nursing, all of them have similarities. Yes, no, no doubt about that, especially when it comes to the topic of gender-based violence in their communities. But the readiness and their ability to engage with their populations, the needs of their populations are dramatically different. And so we can't take that one-size-fits-all approach. 
What we do exceedingly well, I believe, through changing campus culture is provide access to the resources and the concepts and the principles that are strongly rooted in trauma-informed approaches, that are strongly rooted in uh, you know, public health strategies around prevention. And then we allow the institutions to go back and identify through their own data collection and their own efforts and what's going on, on their campus and to implement these things where it meets the need for their campus community. We also, from the very beginning, have encouraged them not to go it alone. This can't be the work. And whether we're talking about um, sexual violence, whether we're talking about hazing, whether we're talking about behavioral health, all the things that, you know, challenge us in, in our institutions, we can't leave this to one individual or one office and say, well, this fits under your umbrella, so make it happen and make it work. Because no one person can take on all of the things and no one person should, right? Um, we're notorious at higher education for getting stuck in our silos and saying, okay, I've got to do this alcohol program so I can check the box for the NCAA or so I can check the box for our insurance company or, 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 right? We get very compliance driven and we focus solely on that. And we fail to recognize that some of the same challenges that are, and I'll just continue to use the athlete scenario here, but our athletes are facing, those athletes also live in our residence halls. Those athletes also go out and socialize with peers that are not on their, on their team. And so the, the, Issues that may exist when it comes to alcohol and other drugs exist beyond the team, exist beyond the athletic department. It exists and permeates our entire campus community. So we have to be willing to break down those silos and take a community prevention approach and understand that we have some shared areas of concern and that we have experts at our institution who understand how these different issues impact their communities that they serve, their knowledge bases, and as well, we need to acknowledge when we're doing that and something that we push really hard with changing campus culture is there are also people in your larger community where your campus is associated who are also interacting with your students or soon to be prospective students, right? And your alumni, um, your employees, they're seeking out resources from in the vein of changing campus culture, likely um, a community-based advocacy program through a rape crisis center or a domestic violence program. They're having interactions with people who make up your campus community. They're making their own observations. They're having their own experiences with them. They're learning things that you may not be aware of. So it's important to bring everybody around the table and to share in that knowledge and that expertise and to share in our common goals and our resources so that we can ultimately achieve outcomes that are going to have a positive impact um, beyond just the campus walls, but certainly within those campus, those campus walls to make a difference. So that comprehensive multi-layered approach, um, utilizing programs that are available, but not trying to conform everything to one size fits all and partnering with our community partners is what really makes the difference at the end of the day um, for our students and for those that we're serving. Thank you very much uh, for you know, talking a little bit about the lessons learned from changing campus culture and particularly highlighting the role that community partners play in changing campus culture. And just as you talked about students having intersectionality, we also know that these issues or problems of practice that we work on are intersected as well. So sexual violence is intersected with alcohol and other drug use, which is also intersected with mental health prevention and promotion, suicide prevention um, specifically as well. 
So as we think about all of these intersectionalities, what has been learned about the student's role in changing campus culture? Well, so we can look at this through a number of ways. You know, um, our students, we create programs, we create um, trainings, we create posters and all these things that are supposed to speak to students and reach them where they're at. But one of the things that, you know, as I mentioned, there's not a one size fits all approach necessarily to how we implement state level programs or whatnot um, in order for us to be successful. We also have to remember that when it comes to the students, right? So if we are, we must often see this with bystander intervention programs. We have shared goals. We want to teach our students in particular in this scenario how to engage and build skills and capacity to be able to intervene before harm occurs or before harm, you know, there's a greater sense of harm or that takes place, right? To intervene before violence occurs. We want to build this, but oftentimes we get stuck in providing the same role play or case scenario to the student groups that we're reaching. And we fail to recognize that oftentimes we have students in those situations who are like, I see where you're going with this. I see what you want me to, to do here, but your scenario doesn't speak to my community. Your scenario doesn't speak to what I know my experience would look like because it doesn't address the multiple intersections to my identity, right? Or it doesn't speak to a culture um, that I've come from and that is still very prevalent in my life and that supports and uplifts me in many ways because your scenario is written through a very specific lens. So we have to be um, willing to engage our students to understand how do we build programs that will speak to you, that will reach your population. The scenario seems, I remember teaching alcohol education classes when I worked on campus and I was, even I was like, these scenarios are really cheesy. This is not how it would go down, right? Like, and no, nobody acts like that. Like, or very rarely does, you know, like, what are we teaching? And so being able to pause and say to a student, okay, we know what the end goal is here. How can anybody, is anybody willing to get up and, and portray this in a way that will be meaningful to you and your peers? We have to be able to kind of step away, allow them that freedom to create a program that speaks to them, right? But we also have to remember that oftentimes, and I've been at the table where we're writing policy or we're designing a, a, a procedure or a program and we're like, oh, this is awesome. It's really operating. And then we look around and we're like, but there's no students here. And we hear that every year, all the time in higher education, right? Like we were designing this policy. We wanted to know how it would impact students. And then we realized there were no students at the table. Oh, well, let's invite a student to the table. And sometimes our intentions are good with that, right? We want that student feedback. We want that student engagement. But we fail to recognize oftentimes when we do that, that we're inviting one or two students to the table and expecting them to speak on behalf of their very specific communities, as well as the campus community, and not failing to recognize the diver diversity and the richness that exists and all the different layers to that um, through these one or two students that we invite to the table. Additionally, you know, using the policy example again, we're asking a student to come to the table and give feedback on policy without acknowledging the power dynamic that exists around that table, right? So what student, and there are students who will speak truth to power no matter what and bless them, but not every student is going to come to the table and tell the dean of students, who's going to tell the chief conduct officer, who's going to tell the chief of campus police or, you know, head of security what they really think about the policy or procedures that are being developed because there's a power dynamic there that is oftentimes unacknowledged um, and un 
unaddressed, right? And so they either check the box and become disengaged, disillusioned with the process. Um, and so I think when, you know, the voice of students is important and it's powerful and they should be included around the table and they should be included as we create these things. But we also have to be really conscious of how we're asking them to interact with us, what our ask is and what are the extenuating factors that may influence how they interact with us and how they contribute to the discussion or the end goals that we're trying to achieve. Thank you so much for pointing out there's so many opportunities for those who are most impacted by policies, programs uh, to give voice. And it's just as important to offer opportunities to give voice, but also prepare those individuals and support them in giving voice. And uh, I really just appreciate you taking the time to explain that. So the Changing Campus Cultural Annual Report um, comes out, and I'm assuming that you all collect data from the campuses in Ohio. And I was just curious, you know, as you review those reports, what is the secret sauce? What do you think exists on those campuses who are sharing their successes and they're very successful? Um, what are some common elements you see in those, uh, in those uh, campuses and their community partnerships as well? Absolutely. Well, you know, I don't know what the secret sauce is. I think I think it's kind of like that magic wand. We all hope that we're going to come across someday and it'll just fix everything, right? But some things that I've really seen, um, you know, at the beginning with changing campus culture, of course, we had our campuses were all over the place in terms of where they were. We had some campuses that were already utilizing campus climate survey level data. They had the knowledge base. They were engaging their campus partners and community partners to create, you know, really fabulous comprehensive approaches to prevention and response, right? To make their campus community safer. So we have people who are nowhere. We have a lot of people in the center who are kind of taking this scattershot approach of I've got this and I've got this and I've got this, but they didn't know how to connect all the efforts and they didn't know what gaps existed. Um, or even if they did know where the gaps existed, they didn't know what to do about it, right? So that's all we did with changing campus culture. We provided in a way, a roadmap for institutions to evaluate their current efforts, the um, gaps that may exist or how they are going to address that. Um, and time and time again, it came back to them identifying things like we're not engaging our campus, our, our community partners, or even our campus partners as best we can, right? We're, we're doing prevention through the Title IX coordinator who's been assigned this, again, that one office, one individual approach, and not understanding that all the different pieces that are connected here, right? Violence is rooted across many different areas. Of course, we know risk factors such as alcohol, high alcohol saturation, which does speak, unfortunately, to a lot of our campus communities, um, to poverty. So we know there are a lot more students that are needing access to, that are experiencing food insecurity, or at least they're being more vocal about it. Um, college is getting more expensive. And so they're experiencing um, poverty or struggling at a level um, that it's not that others haven't in the past, but we're hearing more about it these days, right? We know that they're coming already with multiple diagnoses, obviously, for the behavior and mental health related needs. Um, there's, you know, students who are, have experienced trauma and oppression. All of these fe things feed into the undercurrent of violence. And so what we need to be able to do is to provide those roadmaps to our institutions to say, here's how we take a comprehensive community approach to solving these things. And again, drawing in our experts that are exist in our community who are, have been doing this for years, who 
have additional insights. And sometimes that objectivity of not being on campus and can't say, well, we tried that before and it didn't work or, but, oh yeah, but then so-and-so is going to say this and then it's not going to happen. You know, they can help eliminate some of that to help us see clearer. What are some pathways that may be available to us or how can we reimagine this or, or, or look at this in a different way? I would be remiss if I didn't mention the role that leadership plays in our college campuses, especially as we're looking at, you know, how we affect culture change and how we affect, um, we, you know, mix up the secret sauce, so to speak. You know, it has to be more than just um, a standard message at the start of the year of these are the things we value, these are the things we don't value. That is important, right? That is an important tone for a president or appropriate executive level um, officers at our institutions to communicate. But we also have to set expectations and goals and be accountable to how we're doing that, how we're resourcing that, how we're encouraging that. What happens when we fall short? How do we evaluate that? And how do we take new approaches? Um, leadership has been key um, in that, in, in changing campus culture. And we know that Governor DeWine was very supportive uh, at the start of the pandemic when he heard from students that were in college. And they said, they talked about the behavioral health issues that they themselves were experiencing or their peers were experiencing prior to the pandemic and how it was being exacerbated by the abrupt shutdown in remote services. That's how we got the funding um, to do things like Rise and Thrive, to support our campuses, um, because the governor said, that's not right and it shouldn't be this way. And I'm going to find a way to help make a difference in, in the lives of our students. And so leadership is key also in mixing up that, that special sauce um, from the very beginning. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you um, pointing out uh, the role that leadership plays in changing campus culture or making any campus community partnership work. Um, I had the privilege of working with you on the Rise and Thrive Initiative, and that really was a collaboration between the Ohio Department of Higher Education and the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, you know, in the thick of the pandemic. So really, you all were practicing what you preach, right? We're going to collaborate across cabinet officials in order to make this effort come to fruition. So in Rights and Thrive, we worked a lot with campus community partnerships, um, and we heard from those communities, but also with your rich experience with changing campus culture. What do you think are the successful elements of campus community partnerships? I think, again, it's just that bringing together multiple mindsets, right? Everybody has knowledge. Everybody has expertise. Um, we've all been inspired oftentimes by collaborating with folks. Um, who maybe we don't normally work with or engage with, but the energy they bring or the I fresh ideas or whatever can oftentimes inspire us to take a look at things that we may maybe have gotten so, you know, our lens gets smaller and smaller as to how we see to solve it. And we begin to, you know, see the forest for the trees. We begin to widen that lens and we begin to see what is possible. It also means that no one person has to carry the load, right? Certainly there are folks who take the lead on different pieces um, and carry something forward, um, even if it's as simple as com completing the financial report, right? But at the same time, you have a shared sense of working together, a partnership, a relationship. And if we nurture that correctly, um, not just when the change occurs, you know, when the, there's the cause for change, the ignition point, or there's a grant opportunity, if we really nurture that relationship in that time frame, we build something that's sustainable into the future. We build and create additional opportunities um, to work 
work together and to continue to build upon that and ultimately serve our communities in a manner that's going to be beneficial, mutually beneficial to all. You know, through changing campus culture, we have encouraged from the very beginning, not just leaning into our state coalitions, which are incredibly um, diverse and rich in their knowledge and expertise and, you know, can help them make connections and all that sort of stuff. Those things are all important. But we've also encouraged establishing formal relationships. Take your campus, you know, leave your campus, go to your local sexual assault response team that meets in your community. Get to know the police representative, the advocacy organizations, the hospitals, all these folks who, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, I think most of our campuses will acknowledge it, not all of our students want to come to campus for our support services, right? And there's a, a multitude of reasons for that, and all of them are legitimate. So we want to be able to give students, including our employees and others, of course, that voice and choice and where they go, and how they receive their support services. So if we are only offering, and again, through changing campus culture, advocacy services on campus by going to the specific office, which may or may not be in the best location where all your peers are going to see, and then be like, ooh, why was so-and-so going there? If we don't have that also, that connection, and that resource, and that ability to directly reference and refer somebody to external sources in the community, we miss an opportunity to let healing processes begin, to let self-discovery, you know, bloom and take place. And we ultimately fail those students in their ability to thrive and their ability to persist towards their goal, regardless of whatever speed bump, roadblock, or whatever has come up along the way, because we all experience them in life. Um, and not everybody can just pick themselves up and move on. They need to be able to engage in those resources. So by having that variety and those connections and those relationships already built, we allow us, our students to be, become the best version of themselves in the face of adversity. Absolutely. And as you were speaking, it made me think, and you want those relationships to be built prior to a crisis, right? You want to be sure that you aren't coming together because of an event that happened over the weekend. Um, you want to be sure that that person you're calling up, you've actually talked to or met at a meeting beforehand. So the more proactive we can be at the campus community partnership, everyone benefits uh, from that. Yeah, yeah, I can tell you, even just as a director of housing all those years, you know, being able to say to somebody, hey, I'm going to call this person. This is who you need to talk to. Can I call them and get you connected right away? Instead of fumbling around on the state, you know, the university website, trying to find the right person, may, may or may not work, they may or may not pick up the phone. But I knew the head of counseling was going to answer my call when I called, not because I'm the director of residence life calling, but because they knew that if I'm calling them in the middle of the workday, there's something that's important here and they're going to be able to trust what I'm expressing to them and the connection that I'm trying to make. The same within our, in our greater communities, right? I didn't want to meet. You know, I didn't want to meet the police ever on campus, but I also wanted to know the fire department that may be responding to, likely to be responding to a fire alarm in the residence hall and that they could recognize me or they knew the person they were to be looking for so that we could resolve the issue um, at, in the time and place that it needed to be done um, in a way that would be of advantage for our students. So yes, that proactive nature and building relationships is so important. I also think it's something that we just don't carve out enough time for, right? We've got a lot on our plates that we oftentimes don't take the time to truly build relationships and partnerships. We do often go to the table and say, okay, so I heard you could do something for this, about this for me. When can you do it? And we don't talk about 
anything beyond that moment. And so it's a very point of service interaction. And it's, we don't take the time to really build that relationship and understand how we can be mutually beneficial to each other um, and address greater concerns that may be existing in our community or engage in positive things that may also um, inspire others to lead in an area uh, that they maybe didn't think possible for, but they're inspired now by seeing our partnership or what we've been able to accomplish. Absolutely. It, it takes all of us, right? And, you know, when it comes, whether it comes to addressing sexual violence, addressing substance use disorder, addressing mental health, addressing suicide prevention, and all of us is defined as not just the campus, but also the community in which the campus is situated. And, and when we all have that responsibility and we all have that relationship and we're all putting the work first, um, it really shines through. And I think we saw that in the Rise and Drive uh, initiative uh, as well. So I have one uh, final question uh, before we wrap up here. Um, in what ways can universities and colleges, so higher education uh, and community agencies and organizations be better community partners? What are some ways that they can kind of meet in the middle to do that both and, right? And work in that space that is, you know, like you said, there's no official boundary line, right? But how can they kind of blurry that line even more to collaborate? But I think it goes back to that initial effort. Why are we here? Why are we reaching out? Are we just reaching out again for that point to service program? Or are we talking about the possibilities? What does your organization offer? How have we past engaged with you? How have we not? What are, where have we been at our best? What are you seeing when you connect with students and whatnot and or employees, members of our campus community when they come? Do they come and use your resources? If so, how do they? So I think it's constantly, or it's about establishing that and truly understanding each other um, and what you're struggling with, what they're struggling with, and trying to find those avenues that you can work together on to move forward. Um, but I also think it's about, you know, even when you don't have a specific project or a specific issue you're trying to address, it's okay to meet up for coffee every once in a while, right? And just check in and see what's going on. It's okay to show up to their programs uh, that they that you know they're advertising you've been working on, even if it doesn't directly impact your work. And showing up just to learn more or see your community partner at their best, for all you know, that's going to inspire a new idea. Um, I like what you did here. Do you think we can make that work for this? You know, those types of things. Um, so it's that constant cultivation um, and of the relationship and of what may be or what may exist um, and inviting them to be do more than just table on your campus. Not that that isn't important, right? Like that's oftentimes at those tabling events, how students even know these organizations exist and okay, how do I get involved or how would I access your services? But if that's the sole contact that you're giving them back to your community between doing the program for you and that, it's a build a relationship that just builds a transaction. And so, you know, relationships take time. It's just like making friends with somebody or beginning to engage in a more romantic or intimate relationship with somebody. You can't just one and done it and, and expect everything, you know, every time you call or text or whatever, they're going to jump. You have to build that relationship and, and foster that sense of connectedness. 
Absolutely. I have a very dear colleague of mine um, who worked in the community space who would always say, um, you can't treat your community partners like ATMs and keep coming to them for withdrawals. You have to look at them like a bank where you're also putting in deposits and making withdrawals. And that's where you get to that reciprocal relationship. Um, so uh, you just reminded me of just a very dear friend of mine. And speaking of which, I could talk to you forever. Um, I always love the time uh, that we get to spend, which doesn't seem to be like enough lately, Carrie. So maybe we need to uh, have a chance to go for some coffee. But I know many of our listeners here are winding down their walk break or maybe their drive. Uh, so what they're all waiting for, though, is the three rapid fire questions that we do with every guest. So are you ready? I am ready. Bring it on. <laughs> all right. So would you rather have a rewind button or a pause button on your life? Pause. Without question, a pause button. I think I have saved myself a lot of needs to rewind if I could just internally get myself to hit pause, oftentimes before I jump in. I can definitely resemble that statement. Um, would you rather have your flight delayed by eight hours or lose your luggage completely? Flight delayed. I, I think I would just be completely lost if my luggage didn't show up. I, you know, I, I have actually bit in that situation. I mean, who hasn't, I think, that's done any travel where your luggage doesn't come in and you just realize like how many things you put in your luggage that you might need immediately that you didn't think through that um, initially, you know, you know, be it something as simple as like your toothbrush, right? Like who wants to walk around with it? But, you know, keep it, you don't know, not clean at the end of the day because you're still waiting your luggage. So I would much rather be stuck in an airport for eight hours and hopefully it's in a an area where I can go out and explore for a few set, three, few hours and interact with the new community. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And the final question that we are all waiting to hear, you are reaching into that bowl of M&Ms. Are you choosing plain or peanuts? That depends on where I'm at. I have a, a child with a severe peanut treated allergy. So if I'm at home, I'll go for the plain. If, it, if I'm on my own or they are not around me, 100% the peanuts, uh, 100%. Well, thank you so much again, Carrie, for joining um, Ohio's Prevention and Promotion Community for our podcast episode. We really appreciate your service to the state of Ohio, as well as to Ohio's campuses and communities. Thank you. And for all of our listeners, remember to like and follow our podcast on all your channels so it will download automatically and you can grab it every month. Have a great day, everyone. This has been the Prioritizing Prevention Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, Apple Music, and many more. This program is funded by Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. And for more information about us, please visit preventioncoe.ohio.gov. Thank you for listening.